Hey there, folks. This is Jeff Benjamin along with Bruce Kelly for another episode of The Investment News Podcast. Got a couple of great guests coming at you this week. Our second guest is Christine Shaw, Chief Executive Officer here at Investment News. She'll be talking to us about efforts to promote women in financial services. There's a lot of good stuff going on there. But our first guest is Susan Antilla, an award-winning freelance investigative journalist who has been a reporting fellow at Type Investigations and a financial columnist at the New York Times, Bloomberg, The Street, and USA Today. She is the author of the Me Too book about harassment on Wall Street, Tales from the Boom Boom Room, the landmark legal battles that exposed Wall Street's shocking culture of sexual harassment. Susan has a master's degree in journalism from New York University and an undergraduate degree in sociology from Manhattanville College. She has taught in the journalism departments of New York University and Fairfield University. Susan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, looking forward to this conversation. I think uh, Bruce has the first question for you. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Hey, good morning, Susan. Good morning, Bruce. So great to have you on this podcast. I just thought you'd make a great guest at any time, but this month happens to be Women's Month, right? Right, right. When I think about women on Wall Street, I think about you're practically the first person who comes to mind because you've been the best chronicler of this or one of the most distinguished chroniclers of women's roles on Wall Street for the past, I don't know, 20 or 30 years, longer, maybe. Yeah, I wrote my first story in 1995 about women on Wall Street. So it's been a while. 1995. Yep, yep. (laughs) That's when I was just starting to break into the journalism game myself. (laughs) So I think it's interesting, you know, without getting into much journalists extolling and praising other journalists, but getting, you know, boring people with that. Why did you start writing about women? And we all know, Jeff just read your credentials. You've written for everybody, USA Today, Bloomberg, The New York Times, et cetera. You've taught in a lot of different places. But why did you start writing about women in 1995, what was the impetus for, about that? How did that turn into a book? And and what was why did you want to write the book? And what was the impact of the book there? Let's just kind of start with the root of, of sure. this. Sure, I was in 1995. I was working at the New York Times, and the short answer to your question is I fell into this topic completely by accident. Um, I had <laughs> a happy I, accident, I had, like so much of journalism, yeah, uh, right? Yes, a happy accident. I had just written a piece about a, a regional discount firm called Oldie Discount, O-L-D. Oh, I remember that. Sure. And I had written a piece about really disreputable stuff that they were doing to their customers, to small investors. And it was the lead business story that day. And I, I came into the office and before I could sit down, somebody was coming over telling me my phone had been ringing off the hook. And um, in those days, we had some people who would write down messages on little pieces of pink paper. And Imagine I got a whole that. Bunch. I know, I know. And <laughs> I got a whole bunch of those. And basically, my phone was ringing with women at Oldie Discount Corporation calling to tell me, you missed the story. Now, I mean, look, we're all journalists, right? Sure. You, you just want to shoot yourself when somebody tells you that. What do you mean I missed the story? Yeah, and, and you get were... really pissed off at yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they were all saying the same thing, that they were very productive women. Um, They were all stockbrokers. 
and that they were some of the biggest producers at the firm. And they were either getting fired or they were getting moved 100 miles away and having to give up all their customers. And I kind of said, come on, because I had really, I had drunk the Kool-Aid that said Wall Street's a meritocracy. I really believed that at the time. But understand, that was a lot of years ago. And I said, okay, you're the biggest producers. Yeah, I would say this to each woman. I said, well, prove it to me. And the fax machine started going at the New York Times. We were using fax machines much more then. And they started sending me production runs showing who the top like 20 or 30 people were month after month. I can't believe that people would fax this kind of information to you. I mean, if something like that were to happen today, people could be fired in a second. That's right. That's right. That's but how I guess, motivated, pe- pissed off these women must have been. They were pissed off. But also, you know, women on Wall Street hadn't spoken up before this. So I don't think right. that they really understood the risks, to be honest with you. But so they sent me these things and I piled them up and looked at them. And I've got to tell you, my jaw dropped open because the top 10 women did not make up most of the brokers there. But the top 10 was heavily populated by women. I'm going to say six or seven of the top 10 brokers were women. And these were the people calling me to say that they'd been fired or that their books had been taken away from them. And I have to tell you, from that moment, sitting in, in my office at the New York Times, everything changed. I, you had an I, aha moment, in other I, words. Well, yeah, yeah. I realized that it was not a meritocracy on Wall Street and that everything that I believed was wrong. And so I started listening to these stories. And I wrote I wrote a follow-up piece on them, and that was the lead piece in the business section. And then about a year and a half later, I had moved over to Bloomberg. And while I was there, I found out that the women who were organizing at Smith Barney had seen that piece in the New York Times, and they hired the same lawyers. And I got a phone call saying, they want to talk to you. So that's how I ended up breaking the Boom Boom case. So, uh, you know, it, but it really happened totally by accident. And then as far as the book, you know, I'd been yeah, following- what was the book about? What was the central, you know, the narrative spine? What was the boom boom sure. room? Well, the boom boom room was the basement of an office in Garden City, New York. A, a Shearson, actually, it became um, a Smith Barney office in Garden City, New York, which is on Long Island. And they had this dingy old basement that they kind of dressed up with. They, they brought in a big garbage pail and lined it with a plastic liner and they'd make drinks in it, Bloody Marys. They had beer down there. It was a party room. They hung up. Right. They hung a rusted bicycle from the ceiling in a branch and, of a Shearson Lehman slash Smith Barney uh, office. Is, in right in a branch where the where the okay. public came in every right. day. So downstairs, the public upstairs, <laughs> downstairs, the party room. That's right. That's with right. With the drink, with the drink garbage pail, uh, like a college frat house, in other words. That's right. That's right. Which is kind of what we're talking about through this whole segment, right? Right. So, <laughs> and so that became known as the Boom Boom Room. And honest to God, they had a phone. Down Did you there. coin that phrase, or was that what no, the guy, the, the, the guys, guys working at the it. branch, called it? Yeah, the guys called it that. Everybody at the branch called it that. Yeah, and. Honest God, they had a phone down there and you could find the phone extension in the phone book under B because they listed it under Boom Boom Room. So, <laughs> so yeah, this it was this place. And sometimes they'd be partying down there during the trading day and customers were walking in and, you know, the guys were downstairs having a beer. So that was the Boom Boom Room. And, you know, you asked, why did I write the book? I wrote the book because I was following this story, you know, that it was a big, the women filed a lawsuit in 1996. It got a lot of publicity. And 
there was a point where I was Were they claiming it. harassment or discrimination or what was the basis of the suit? They were claiming sexual harassment. They were claiming pay discrimination. In this suit and quite a number of other women's suits, they objected to the way accounts were distributed. So if a, if a broker, a male broker is retiring and they're distributing- That's still a account, big deal, it seems. It, you're absolutely right. It is still a big deal. So those were the kinds of claims that they made. Women weren't getting promoted. And you know, I was able to track down some incredible examples of women working the exact same job as a, as a man and making, you know, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 less than the guy doing the same job. So, but what ended up happening was I started seeing Smith Barney winning the PR game. I started seeing, especially down in Florida, there were some big cases against them in Florida. The Florida papers were doing stories about women brokers at Smith Barney who loved their careers. They said it's the greatest place to work for women. And then Smith Barney started taking out full page ads in the New York Times magazine about their breast cancer research efforts and other pro women efforts. And I remember the moment sitting at my desk at Bloomberg where I said, I can't let these people rewrite history. I have to write a book about this. Right. I just have to. That was what motivated me, and nothing was going to stop me. Right. <laughs> That's fantastic. Jeff, you got anything for Susan? Yeah. Where do you think we are today from that yeah, period? Yeah, 20, 25 years flash forward. Yeah. Where, where, my, my point is that there has been a few flashpoints recently. There was the Harvey Weinstein. There was the Ken Fisher, which kind of sparked things in the financial services industry a lot. And, and I, I, I'm kind of interested... It seems like you made, and rightfully so, you know, like a almost a franchise out of this this uh, <laughs> this theme, which is great. I mean, it's obviously very important. But a couple things: Do you feel like we're making progress, and um, do you feel like the flashpoints of the past few years have kind of pushed things a little bit faster or harder? So it's a complicated answer. I think there are things that definitely have gotten better. You know, Bruce had mentioned that there still are problems with account distributions. Well, a lot of these class actions, the women at Merrill Lynch sued that firm for gender discrimination in 1997. And ultimately, Merrill and other firms who were sued, they did change their distribution methods. It got a little bit better. But what happened after that, if this is always three steps forward and a couple backwards, right? Mm -hmm. What happened after that is a lot of the guys who didn't want women to get those accounts they started more aggressively putting together teams and there were no women on the teams. And if you're on a team, you can keep, the team can keep those accounts of the retiring broker, right? So, you know, there were some workarounds that caused women to not get as many accounts as they should have. I think that there has been progress on the whole, um, you know, the whole account distribution issue. But, you know, I don't know. I look at the numbers, right? Because this is a numbers game. And I think the last number I saw about the percentage of women who are financial advisors was something like 18%. The percentage was 18% women. Mm-hmm. And it's been I, stuck at 20% for as long as I can remember, Susan. Is, is it up to 20 In that neighborhood, yeah. 15 yeah. to 20% or something. Okay. So, you know, if let's just look at a big firm. You've got Merrill Lynch. In, in 1997, they had 15% women. In 2004, they had 15% women. Now, they've gone up to 21% women now because they've come under so much pressure because of lawsuits. Without lawsuits, we would see no progress in any of this. But to give you some perspective, back in the 1980s, Merrill Lynch was fighting a different lawsuit, and the EEOC had sued them. 
And the EEOC in the 1980s told Merrill Lynch that they wanted Merrill to get to 25% women. Well, this is 2021, and nobody is at 25% women. Yeah. You know, so it's so funny because, you know, people, when people call me, they all ask the same question. Do you think it's better? And sometimes I say, Jesus, it must be better, right? And I start looking around for the better examples. But when I look at the numbers, I, I really have a hard time saying that it's much, much better. And, you know, you guys did a great piece of research a couple of years ago where about sexual harassment. And as I recall, 60% of the women you surveyed said that they'd had a personal experience with sexual harassment. That's, a, that's incredible, right? So, I mean, you tell me, do we call that progress? I don't, I don't think that's great progress. Well, let me, let me ask you something about the numbers. And, and I certainly can understand, you know, the power of the big wirehouses, whether they're intentionally or unintentionally putting hurdles in front of women. But in the RIA space, the independent financial advisors, which is a large part of our audience at Investment News, anyone can launch an RIA and open up an advisory firm. But the numbers are still not really that much better than what you see in the, in the wirehouse channels. Why is that? I mean, there's nothing really stopping any woman from opening an advisory firm if they want to be in this, this industry, right? You know, I don't have a good answer to that. I don't know why, because I, I have spoken to women who are very happy having their own RIAs. So I don't know why more women haven't flocked to that. I, I really can't give you a good answer. Mm -hmm. Oh, I know there's a lot of efforts out there. And I I see a lot on social media and Twitter in particular. There's a, a lot of support for for women by other women and by other men. It looks like at least maybe it's just the people I follow on Twitter, but there seems to be a the push seems to be constant. And and it's all good. I mean, the diversity across financial services is long overdue and, and certainly necessary. Yeah, I, I wish I could tell you, I wish more women, maybe, I don't know, do you think women aren't aware that they have that possibility? I would think that they would know, but... Um, well, I would think anybody who's in, in any way qualified to be a financial advisor or working in financial services would be familiar with the RAA channel. Right. But maybe, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough to start from scratch. So a lot of the people, not just women, a lot of the people that end up in the independent channel start out at places like Merrill Lynch and Ameriprise and stuff like that, and then spin off or they start oh, out at a, do, right? Yeah. I mean, or I at a larger that. RIA and then spin off on their own. So, I think it's just Jeff and, and Susan, I just think it's still a tough industry to get into because the, the basic entryway to the industry is still joining a training program. Mm -hmm. If you're a young person or if you're a middle-aged person looking for a new career, going to Edward Jones, and then you have to sell to your friends and family. <laughs> right, still, right. You know, it's still a, it's, it's basically, even though, you know, the industry likes to say, preach that we're offering advice, we're offering advice. It's still a sales-based industry. You have to go out and sell something to somebody on a given day to make the cut at the Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley training program. Yep, and, I, and it's a high I, barrier of entry. I'm not sure how much women are still facing the fact that some customers don't want to work with women. You know, that's yeah, that, a whole other issue, right? That That is uh, clearly a point that not, I mean, I think a lot of ethnic and racial minorities are probably facing those same hurdles. That's why it's maybe different, more difficult to start up as a woman. And I'm only making assumptions here. I don't have anything to base that on, but that might be one of the reasons that you don't see 
more women, the number's higher in the independent channel. Right, right. But what, let's fast forward to today, Susan, I'm sure you're working on this stuff all the time, but I mean, there must be some glimmers of hope and some some positive things you can point to that you're seeing out there, even at the the biggest of the Wall Street firms. I mean, again, I'm making an assumption, but yeah, that's no, what no, we no. do here on the podcast. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's interesting. I think that women are more willing to file a lawsuit and take the risk of putting their names out there. I mean, most women do not do this, but some do. I mean, we've seen Point seventy two. Steve Cohen's firm has been sued a couple times. And the reason I mention that as a good thing is that a lot of the women who've been suing in the past year or so are pretty high level women. They're not financial advisors. You know, they're hedge fund people making a lot more money than most stockbrokers make anyway. And so the fact that they're suing, I think, is of note because they're high level people. And we didn't have women who, for example, um, as you know, Eileen Murray sued Bridgewater. She was the former C, you know, co-CEO of Bridgewater. She's now the chairman of FINRA. Well, it was pretty good that she was the co-CEO, even right. though she said that she was discriminated against and she settled that, that case. But you know, I think it's noteworthy that you see some of these women who are name women, pretty well known in their, in their fields, who are, they've gotten up high and they're willing to take a chance and just not people necessarily bringing lawsuits, but you've got Jane Frazier, who's the CEO of Citigroup. I mean, who knew that was going to happen? Right. Um, right. And I think it's Elizabeth Duke, who's the chairman, chair of um, the Wells Fargo board. So, yes, there is progress. You, you can't see, get any more high level than that for women yeah, in the industry. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's these things still lead to a lot of coverage of, quote, first woman who, right? So it, it's not considered normal yet. But the fact that it's happening, I think, is, is a good thing. And it's a great example for, with the other cases I just mentioned, it's a great example for all women on the street to see that there's some high-level people who are willing to come forward. So that's all good news. And the numbers are, are a little bit better in women getting into management. They're a little bit better. They're not fantastic, but there's some very slow progress on that. So, you know, there are some good things. The other thing is, for the most part, I think that when it comes to sexual harassment, a lot of the cases are much more about things that happen between two people or comments that are made by a man alone with a woman. Yeah, there's and, not a boom boom room in a branch, right, right in right. Garden City anymore. I mean, right. they're just in the yeah. age of social media and everybody has a camera with them. I mean, you can't. You're you're absolutely right, and you know what that I type of behavior just seems outrageous. Would be outrageous for anyone to do. They get fired in a second. You know. Yeah, there's still a little bit of stuff like that, which I'll mention in a second. But you know, you mentioned people with cell phones. I think that the iPhone is the greatest thing that ever happened to women in business. <laughs> because when I talk to lawyers who represent women suing for sex discrimination. I say to them, so how often, you know, does a woman walk into your office and she's got a recording? And they say to me, every single woman who walks into my office has a recording. Now, wow. you know, okay, so I'm telling you about maybe, you know, four or five people I've spoken to, uh, you know, over the past year who said that to me, but that's a big deal. Women know to just push the record button on their iPhones and have them in their pockets. And I think that the men who are harassing them or discriminating against them in some way, they really haven't yet caught on that they're at risk about that. 
I really don't think that they have. So that's a great tool for women. And you do have to be cautious. I mean, since people are listening to this, you have to be very cautious to know the law in your state. There are states where you can record somebody, and even if they're not aware of it, but there are states where it's illegal to do that. So I think- Right, like in New York, you can record somebody without informing them of that. That's right, right? that's right. But in Connecticut, I could not, you know, right now on the telephone, I couldn't record you without telling you. So right, you'd have to get the person's permission first, right? Yeah, but I think in Connecticut, you can do it if you're in person with them. So you can see that there are there are a right. lot of funny little quirks to these laws. And so anybody considering doing that on the job really needs to do a quick Google check to see what your state law is. Right, but the even whether it's legal or not and will hold up in a, a legal suit, the idea that it's available, the threat of being able to record everything should bring some people to toe the line a little bit better, you would think. Just knowing everybody should know now that whether you're whatever you're doing out in public, you could be recorded. You're absolutely right. I mean, look at what we've done in Black Lives Matter. Look what we've been able right. to see, right? So yes, I think it's definitely a threat that hangs over the heads of people who want to harass or intimidate women on Wall Street or anywhere. So yes, it, it's, it's a huge change and an important one. And you know, when we were saying that things are better, and you're right, there is no boom, boom room that I've heard about, because believe me, I would have written about it. But you know, when you look at some of the recent suits, one of the suits against Point Seventy Two was talking about an executive who was dropping expletives and using a derogatory word for women's genitals. Another suit against Point Seventy Two, a woman called the place a testosterone boys club, and I mean, this is like so first grade. I just can't even believe I'm telling you. But she alleged that they, the men, would have what they called no girls allowed meetings. I mean, we're we're really back in kindergarten here, you know. <laughs> so. So and well, that's you know, a hedge fund, okay? That's not a brokerage firm right, with, a, okay. I'll with give an you HR. That. No, I think it's just interesting though because I think at a giant institution like a, you know, I mean, Merrill Lynch doesn't even exist anymore as Merrill Lynch, right? right it's part of right. Bank of America, which is this huge North American global corporation, which half of its customers are women, which doesn't want headlines along those lines. But that's I don't true. think that the hedge Stephen Cohen and the guys at at a hedge fund or whoever's running a hedge fund, operate on with that same sensibility. You're absolutely right. They don't. They don't. So, you know, I think that some of the worst sexual harassment is happening at hedge funds. And there, um, at PIMCO, uh, there was a lawsuit last year where a woman sued and she said the place was a fraternity where senior management encouraged drinking at strip clubs. So, but that's not Merrill Lynch. <laughs> and you, you make a really good point. But you know the fact that women are getting into some of these private equity firms and and hedge funds—that's what they are sometimes facing. Well, it seems like that that makes sense. I mean, those are private companies; they don't have to make these disclosures, right? They yep. can settle things much more quietly without, again, without having to make some kind of financial disclosure or whatever. Yeah. So, and you know, if you're gonna of- if you're gonna harass, that would be the. You know, you want to go do sexual harassment, that would seem to be the place to go to. Yes, you're going to have a better time at one of those places for sure. And, you know, you always have the thing hanging over all this that most women can't go to court at all, right? I mean, Wall Street invented mandatory arbitration. Back in the 80s and early 90s, they had 
two big wins at the Supreme Court. And the rest of American industry followed them, watching how well it worked for them. So you've got so many women who can't go to court at all. And a lot of, I've read a lot of arbitration agreements where, like if you go to a FINRA arbitration, FINRA has no rules saying that the content of the arbitration is confidential. If somebody wants to talk about it, they can talk about it. But the firms put a lot of stuff into employment agreements saying, you can never talk about this ever. And, you know, you'll be fired and we'll claw back, you know, whatever money you got in a settlement. So there is a very strong force out there making sure that the public does not hear about this stuff. Now, considering the number of cases that all of us could sit here and talk about right now that we are aware of, just consider the fact that there are multiple more cases that we never hear about because they're kept quiet by the firms. Well, that that statement you just made, Susan, kind of is the is a segue into the question I was going to ask a second ago is how do women take these issues to complain or report? What do you do? I mean, if HR is not helping or maybe the, the firm is structured in a way that is just designed to tamp these things down, what should a woman do or anyone? What should anyone do to uh, to bring these uh, complaints to the fore? Well, a lot of people don't like this answer that I give to that question, but I think you're crazy if you go into this process without a lawyer. I mean, there are so many tricks and traps for a woman who complains that you're going to get caught if you don't know what you're doing. I mean, you really have to understand sort of the the roadmap. I mean, that's part of why I wrote that book, right? To give women an idea of how this really works. So you know, I don't care what lawyer it is, I would just get an employment lawyer. That said, you don't have a lot of choices. Most firms have some kind of an internal complaint system. I can tell you that I think twice I've heard of a woman going through that process and the firm saying that she had a case. Those internal complaint systems are really, they're legal devices for firms to learn how much exposure they have. So those can be pretty dangerous. You often will end up having to take a complaint to FINRA. And it's better to have a place to go than no place to go, right? But a couple of years ago, I took a look at 30 years of sexual harassment complaints in FINRA arbitration. And I found 97 complaints. And I'm, I'm looking for the numbers here to tell you 17 women out of 97. So that's, I think, uh, 18% of the time women won their harassment claim at FINRA. So you also need to you need to go into this stuff yeah. knowing what you're going into, right? And and by the way, I'll give you another little data point. There were there were 14 men who brought sexual harassment cases because there are women bosses now, and actually there are men who harass men as well. 14 men and four of them won. So men won 29% of the time and women won 18% of the time. So even in sexual harassment cases, men do better. <laughs> That's kind of a grim lesson for the day. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's a it's tough to fight, but you know, it's important that women fight because if they don't fight, nothing changes. And the biggest changes that we've seen have come after big, ugly, embarrassing class action suits. Right. 
Well, the only other thing I have for you, Susan, is I'd like to know what you're working on now. What's uh, what's the next big project? You got a book <laughs> underway or what? I can't tell you what I'm working on right now. I, I have Uh-oh. thought about I have. It's going to be a good one then. <laughs> <laughs> I have thought about another book. But, you know, after Me Too, there were just so many books on these issues that, you know, I really held off for a few years. I, I would like to write another book, even about women on Wall Street. But I wanted the dust to settle a little on, on all of that coverage because I think that there was just too much coverage for a while from a competitive point of view, you know, in terms of putting another sure. book out there. Susan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It was it, my pleasure. Susan Antillo, it was such a pleasure to have you on, really. Really Thank good you. stuff. Hey, it's Nicole Casperson. I am coming at you to remind you that the new investment news podcast called Tech Stacks will be dropping Monday, March 22. Be sure to check it out as we are covering all things social media. You can find us on investmentnews.com, fintechforadvisors.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere you can find podcasts. Now, back to Jeff and Bruce. Okay, good stuff. Now we have our very own Christine Shaw, Chief Executive Officer of Investment News, is uh, honoring us with her presence here on our podcast. This is our (laughs) first time we've had the big boss on the show, and we're honored to have her come visit us down here in the basement at Investment News. Uh, It's, it's, uh, you know, we don't normally get stars here. But uh, Christine, welcome. Welcome to the Investment News podcast. Thank you for joining us. We're going to kind of pick your brain just a little bit about some of the things going on in Investment News here at the tail end of Women's History Month. Wanted to ask you about, first of all, the Her Success Matters platform, and then maybe also about what's going on with what Investment News is doing to help advance. We've had a uh, lot of stuff about about for, for women's for Women's History Month this this month, I think, right? So we got yeah. one. So thanks, Jeff and Bruce, both for having me. I'm honored to be here. You two are pros <laughs> and you've, you're like on fire. You're crushing the downloads and you have a great following. So happy to join. How many times um, do you get to interview your boss? You know, <laughs> that just seems strange to me. Well, well yeah. hopefully more than once, Bruce. Cause <laughs> <laughs> We're about to find out, right? <laughs> Maybe it'll just be this one time. <laughs> so tell us about Her Success Matters. I'd be delighted to. So Her Success Matter began from a conversation I had while I was attending one of our own events in New York City. And I was having a conversation with Mike Durbin, the head of Fidelity Institutional. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about the importance of men as allies and allyship. And Fidelity runs some fantastic programs on diversity, equity, and inclusion, including their men as allies. So I actually asked him if he would be willing to be my first guest. And initially, I thought we would do eight episodes, do a series, and it's just taken on a life of its own. And it's because There are so many terrific women who are in financial services, and they really want to inspire other women, teach other women, teach companies, things we can do to make our environment much more inclusive for female advisors. What what, what are some of the stories that you hear from women about how life on Wall Street for them has changed over the past 10, 20, 30 years? Has it gotten yeah. any better? Has it gotten any easier for women? You know, it's, it, was, it's, it was pretty tough going 20 or 25 years ago. It was. And so when I listen to some of the stories, women like Erin Botsford or Ida Liu, who's head of Citibank Private Wealth, you know, as they come into the industry, it's very intimidating. And if you're trying to balance 
um, everything from work-life, home balance, responsibilities. You, you have to be comfortable and have enough confidence, especially back then, to be okay being the only woman in the room. And that was the common theme that right. came through. And some of the women who became more successful were those who weren't afraid to be the only woman in the room. And what's happened now is, fortunately, the industry is doing a better job at recruiting women into the industry. So allowing the, if you, if you see it, you can be it. So if you go into a room and there's other females, then it's more comfortable. And also, I think what's interesting about your question, Bruce, is we still have the challenge of when women come into the industry, a lot of them have to pause mid-career. And it's because the demands of at home and balancing their personal life with the work life, it's really hard, especially on Wall Street, where it's that pre-pandemic in the office, you know, long hours. And that doesn't lend itself to having the nurturing mother role. And I think what companies are starting to realize is that more flexibility, more awareness of that, more programs that lean into that and help women manage it all in a more productive way. But the pandemic has definitely shown even a brighter light on this. And what we're hearing is statistically that more women have had to leave the workforce because of the demands that are going on, even in the home working. What are some of the other things that Investment News has been doing to to kind of help advance women in financial services that you've been working on, Christine, or that you've seen? Yeah, good question. So for us, the workaround women advisors started long before I joined. So the former CEO and publisher, Suzanne Syracuse, she had launched two fantastic initiatives. One of them is called the Women Advisor Summit. And that is now in its sixth year. And it's based on the premise of women actually teaching other women. Things like marketing strategies, effective how to grow your business, how to get more clients, all those things. Yeah, and that's a that, big deal, right? That it, meeting yeah. is, a, is a big deal. How many people come to that typically? And I mean, in a, in a non-pandemic type of you year, know, what were the... Yes. So we would have as much as three to 400. It was one of our largest. And what's interesting about that, Bruce, is we thought, oh, in the pandemic, will we be able to keep engagement? We just had our, I think, fifth was since the pandemic. And we have had up to over a thousand registered uses at an individual was. And just last week, we had over 700. And it's wow. interesting because we a have- a lot of people, we'll, Christine. It's a lot. 700 which, people- yeah. And it speaks to the community, right? And the support that women want to give to each other and learn from each other. And it's not just women who go. We have some fabulous men who come and attend. But it, what's interesting is we took different content strategies this year, in addition to the key strategies and contents that help women succeed as a financial advisor. We also brought in practitioners around meditation, nutrition, dealing with children during the pandemic. So we really leaned into the type of content that was meaningful in their lives today in the current situation that we all find ourselves in. So that's one example. We also have a community on our website called the Women Advisor Community, and we do a lot of content specific to them. And then we have a fabulous annual Women to Watch Awards program where we women are nominated and we highlight and showcase and recognize some of the most successful women in the industry, bar none. And that's very inspiring. 
That's a lot. And obviously, um, that is a lot. <laughs> probably the challenges were, were multiplied like everyone else with uh, not being able to do a lot of these things in person. Are there any any other things kind of uh, maybe down the road that we can look out for or plans for more and stuff like that? Anything on the docket yet? Yeah, you know, one of the things that's interesting is so one is we're continuing to grow this platform, Her Success Matters. And in fact, it was interesting because going back to we thought, oh, this would be eight episodes. We're booked out through June and the requests keep coming in for suggestions of people. No, I started with like one thinking I'd do (laughs) eight and now we're like 40 in with um, bookings through June. So it's been an incredible journey. And then it's also around continuing the phenomenal programs we've already started. But the other thing we I've learned through this journey and we're continuing to learn is that women of color specifically are even more impacted in this industry. We have really tried to do a better job of creating a platform and hearing their voices and giving them more opportunities to have their voices heard. And we've had some amazing women, both on the podcast and honored in um, some of our awards programs and also as speakers at Women Advisor Community. So I think the thing we're going to look to is to do more of that as we go forward and more things to help companies. What's interesting is we really focus on the individual woman in these advisor summits. But what we're realizing is it's education to the companies on how to engage, attract, and retain strong, talented women, like the programs that they can put into their organization that make women say, I want to go work for your company. All right. That's a a fantastic way to approach that problem. So you're not only focused on the individual person, right? But the kind of the, the, the company that is doing the hiring. Yeah, absolutely, Bruce. And it's it's interesting because what we've learned through that is you don't realize it, but you have these unconscious bias and practices and everything from where you typically get your candidates from. And you realize you have to broaden your network and your reach. If if you're going to attract more diversity into your organization, it starts with your network. And even like when we were looking at some of the speakers in the lineup, we're like, we have to expand beyond just our current network. So right. we've learned a lot from some fantastic women on this series, like things that they do in their HR organizations. They have women's initiatives within the companies themselves, the, you know, the Fidelity example with the allyship programs. So there's a lot of great things we've learned having sponsorship programs within organizations. So everything from hiring practices to specific women initiatives and also putting forth women as speakers. It's we're starting to get more demanding, if you will, when we get sponsors, not to just put forth the same people, but to give experienced women an opportunity to speak at some of these events. Huh. That's really interesting. Yeah, no. And it's really resonating. The feedback we're getting, the shift we're seeing, it's really helpful. And the way we look at it, it's everyone's job together. and. The whole thing about working at solving a problem together and making it a collective responsibility, I think feels better to everyone. It feels more natural. And it's not about blame or or saying, you know, there was a there was a lot of negativity sometimes around this stuff, but it's like 
it feels really good when everybody's leaning in saying, we can do this and we can make change. And more importantly, the research and statistics shows us over and over again that the more diverse your team is, both in terms of race, gender, color, all that, you're going to get a better outcome and result. And that's just that the results are there. The proof is there. The research is there. So why would companies not want to do that? Mm-hmm. All right, Bruce. That was great, Christine. Thank well, you so thank much. Thank you both. Uh, we look forward to continuing to bring more programs for advisors across all different types of organizations, firms, and you know, gender and diverse backgrounds and underserved communities forward because we're seeing great results from doing this work. And that's, thank that, you both. Yeah, you're welcome. That's that's fantastic. I'm looking forward to that. So, Jeff, that was a terrific episode of the Investment News Podcast. Yes, sir. And as Jeff, as you know, if it's if it's Monday, it's time for a new podcast, right, at Investment News. We want to thank our special guests, uh, veteran uh, Wall Street reporter Susan Antilla and Christine Shaw, the CEO of Investment News. We also want to thank Stephen Lamb, our producer. And uh, as we said, you can find the podcast at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please leave a review on Apple and follow us on Spotify. If you want to shoot us a question, Jeff's handle on Twitter is at Benji Ryder and mine is at Guy. Stay tuned and we'll be talking to you next week. Ah!